Today we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, like I am, this will be on page 899. Today we get a good um, display of God's grace to us in having Pastor Jamie be our pastor and preach every Sunday. So, we're going to read this, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go to work. So, John chapter 12, verse 20 says, we're going to read all the way down to verse 36. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said, It had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has, not come, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you will become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Holy, holy God Almighty. There is none beside you. You are the great I am. I pray, Lord, that as we dig into this passage in your word, your inspired word, inspired by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us as your people, to, to understand what John is communicating through the Spirit, Lord, to understand what Jesus is saying, 
so we might have a better glimpse, a better view of the gospel, Lord. I pray that you will guard my lips, that I will not say anything that is not true, that I will not present Christ in a way that is not Christ, Lord. I pray that you will, you will open all of our hearts, Lord, that we would be receptive to the things that, that is being taught here in this passage so that we may go forth from this place and live even more in light of the gospel, Lord. I thank you for the promises of the gospel that we find in this passage and the way that they are fulfilled and are, will be fulfilled, Lord. I pray that you will be with me, Lord, that I would not seek to please man, but just seek to be true to your word and true to your gospel, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather as believers and open your word and learn from it. And I pray. Amen. Countdowns. That's what we see in this passage. Jesus says, my hour has come. We're, we're coming to the end of a countdown. Every year, thousands of people flock to New York City Times Square to watch the ball drop on a new year while millions of people watch the event from home. A couple years ago, my brother-in-law and a friend decided on December 31st that they were going to go and they were going to watch the ball drop in New York City. Problem is, is you, ha- you can't plan to go to New York City and to Times Square the day of. You won't get in. And they didn't. So they got there and they watched the ball drop from a television screen at a restaurant several miles from Times Square. And it was a great experience. My little sister would probably kill me if she heard me telling this story, but she's not here. But she likes to make paper chains, or she did, as a countdown clock. She'll do is she'll take construction paper or whatever, and she makes links, and she links them all together, and each length, link of the chain represents a day. She was planning for an event. I don't remember what the event was. But she made a chain that was 120 lengths long. I don't know how long she spent making this chain. And then she strung it up around her room, and every day she'd tear one off. Me, I would have just gotten on my app store and downloaded one of the 20-plus countdown apps that are available. They have them for everything. You have Christmas countdowns. You have birthday countdowns. You have... uh, I'm just thinking of a birthday countdown. You really have to like your birthday. (laughs) But... John Christ, who is a, a Christian comedian, if you don't follow him, he's really funny. He's got some really good stuff. The other, a couple weeks ago, he had a sketch on his Instagram story about brides-to-be and how they faithfully, every day or once a week, annoy all of their friends with a countdown timer on their social media accounts, all of them. They'll say something like, only 420 days until I'm Mrs. Blank, hashtag blessed. Now, if you have 420 days, maybe you should wait a little bit. I agree with John in saying that I think it should be a rule that the max countdown timer for something like this should be no more than 90 days, and even that's a little generous. What we have in Scripture is a countdown timer that is several thousand years long. Throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we find promises of the gospel. Starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God curses the serpent after the fall 
But in this verse, we find a glorious promise. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say the word crush. This is a fatal injury. And you shall bruise his heel. Not fatal. This is what has been known and called by many theologians as the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel, all the way back in the book of Genesis. As we keep moving through the book of Genesis, you find the promises to Abraham, where God tells Abraham that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. This blessing to the world is Christ. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, there is passage after passage of promise and prophecy of a coming Savior, a coming King, a great high priest who will do away with the useless animal sacrifices that have to be repeated year after year. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As we read through these Old Testament passages, we are meant to feel tension. When we're meant to feel like the story isn't over when we reach the end of Malachi. The time has not yet come. The promises are left unfulfilled. But even when Jesus comes, we find in John 2, 4, that Jesus tells his mother that his time has not yet come. And then again, in chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, Jesus tells his brothers, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, the Jewish leaders try to arrest him, but they can't because his hour has not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, the same situation. They try to arrest him, but they can't because his hour has not yet come. What I do find interesting is that the first public proclamation that we find in the book of John, uh, that the hour has indeed come, is found here in chapter 12 in a conversation with Greek worshipers, not Jews. This point we'll explore more in our first point. My summation of the theme that we will look at today is this. The hour has come for the gospel promises to be gloriously fulfilled. And we will do this by looking at some specific gospel promises that Christ addresses here in this passage. I have four points that should take us about 35 to 40 minutes to work through And then we'll pray. The four points that we will work through are these. Number one, Christ will bear much fruit by drawing all peoples to himself. Number two, the world will be judged and the ruler cast out. Number three, Jesus' soul is troubled, but God will be glorified. And then number four, Christ's words of warning, time is running out. Well, let's get started. Number one, Christ will bear much fruit by drawing all peoples to himself. Let's go back to verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went to An- and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
The significance in what Jesus is saying is not just what he is saying, but to whom he is saying it. This is something that I didn't notice at first. I was working through the what of the passage. But, let me, okay. I was working through the what of Jesus' words, and honestly, it's not all that different from things he said in the past. But when I started to think about how his hearers would have understood him, the who brings a new perspective on the what in this passage. Let me illustrate this. Up until this point, aside from a few isolated incidents, Christ's ministry has been predominantly to the Jews. Now here at the beginning of his Passion Week, the week of his death, burial, and resurrection, when he says the hour has come, the hour of the fulfillment of these promises that are throughout the Old Testament, Christ is, we find Christ in dialogue with Greeks. I don't want to breeze over this fact. I mean, look at verse 19 of the same chapter. The Pharisees say one to another, see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And then with almost a twist of irony, John says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. There are several things to notice about the way that they approach Christ that I think is interesting. First, they go to Philip and ask to see Jesus. We find here in the passage that Philip is from Bethsaida, which is a region in Galilee. Bethsaida was actually populated by many Gentiles. And Philip's name is actually not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name. So these Greeks, who were from what I could find, probably what is known as God-fearers, would have felt more confident approaching someone like Philip rather than uh, one of Jesus' other disciples because of his background. Now, God-fearers were Gentile converts to the Jewish worship who had not taken the covenant sign of circumcision, so they would have been excluded from full temple worship and relegated to the court of the Gentiles. This would have affected their social standing within the Jewish community as well. Keep this in mind as we work through Christ's conversation with them. Let's look again at the text starting at verse 23 and think about who Jesus is talking to and how this changes the paradigm of how we understand what Christ is trying to communicate. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now, think about this. Jesus told a bunch of religiously and therefore socially excluded Gentiles, follow me, and where I am, there will you be. And if you serve me, the Father will honor you. This would sound crazy to these people. This is offering full fellowship with God outside of the Mosaic law. Jump down to verse 30. 
This is right after God speaks to Christ from heaven. Jesus answered, This voice is, from you, is for your sake, not mine. The audible voice of God was for the benefit of the people who were not Jews. Let's go down to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. This is not saying that all people will actually come to Christ, but that all people, indiscriminate of race, ethnicity, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, etc., without the requirements of the Mosaic law, which, would have, which was what was assumed to be the way of full fellowship with God, all people will be drawn by Christ. Let's look finally at verse 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The fact that Jesus is having this conversation with uncircumcised Gentiles is remarkable. As I said at the beginning, up until this point, Christ's ministry has been predominantly to the Jews, almost exclusively. But for him to have this conversation with Gentiles shows a radical shift in the scope of Christ's ministry. If you look through the other uh, gospel narratives, you look at what happens after Christ triumphantly enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you see him healing people in the temple. Those who are who maimed and injured shouldn't, weren't allowed in the temple. Jesus is, is changing the, the paradigm and how, how his disciples look at things. Christ is the only means of a reconciliation. This is what Jesus means when he says, he will bear much fruit and that he will draw all men to himself. Because apart from him, we're without God and without hope. I'm going to touch more on this later, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on right now. Number two, the world will be judged and the ruler will be cast out. Looking at verse 30, and Jesus answered, the voice is come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, as I read these two statements, Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. And Jesus says, now is the ruler cast out. I have several questions. One of them being, I thought Jesus, I thought the judgment of the world was at the second coming. That's what we find in the book of Revelation. And the ruler cast out. So, who, who is this ruler? Because I see the effects of Satan everywhere. It can't be Satan, can it? So what does Christ mean? Let's take this one statement at a time, and I hope to show how a glorious promise this is. Now is the judgment of this world. When we think about judgment of this world, does that ever conjure up happy thoughts? We bristle at the thought of judgment. When, some, when we say that someone is judgmental, that's never a compliment. 
When we read about the judgment of God, it should scare us. It should make us very, very uncomfortable. Because, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's Romans 5.12. We have all sinned. Paul continues this thought in verse 19 as we read, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Thanks, Adam. That's bleak, but that's our state outside of Christ. This is the idea, this is why the idea of God's judgment is so repulsive to the world and so, and why it should bother us so much. Now you may be thinking, but Steve, I thought you said this was a glorious promise. None of this seems very glorious. Well, let's finish verse 19 of Romans chapter 5. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's hour of glorification is the hour that he will stand in the place of those who are his servants, those who follow him at the neglect and even contempt of the things in this world as we see here in the passage. And Christ will take the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God in their place. This is the substitution that pastor preached on two weeks ago. This is the glorious promise of the gospel that Christ has purposed to fulfill. This act of Christ is the thing that justifies those who are Christ's followers, those who are in Christ, as Paul describes. But his death is also the thing that condemns those who refuse to follow Christ and choose to love the world over Christ. Now is the ruler of the world cast out. I'm not going to lie, I struggled with this. It was clear by what it was said and then confirmed by everything that I read that the ruler being spoken of here is, in fact, Satan. But how is Satan cast out when we see so much of his influence in the world today? And just think, two weeks ago, we had a shooting at a school. Last week, there was a mass stabbing at a school that many people haven't heard about. 20-something kids were injured, most of them very critically. I mean, just the world is, there's so much evil in the world, but it says here that the ruler is cast out. So where is he cast out of? If you look at the books of Job and Zechariah, we find a couple instances where Satan is standing in heaven accusing Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints. We find him accusing Job in Job chapters 1 and 2. And the high priest Joshua in Zechariah's vision in Zechariah 3. In the book of Luke, we find the story of Jesus commissioning the 72 disciples to go out and preach the gospel. And while the gospel is being preached, Christ says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What in the world does that have to do with this passage? And what in the world does it mean? You're probably going to have to find somebody a whole lot smarter than me to pick up all of that. But what I think it means from just resources I've read and just studying it myself. Prior to the death of Christ, prior to the, to the coming hour of Christ, Satan had access to the Father and stood accusing saints. But after the death of Christ, Satan lost his ability to stand in heaven and accuse us to the Father. Because John says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he says, My little children, 
I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what does propitiation mean? Propitiation is actually the same. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the, if you look at the, the Greek translation of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. The word used, the, the word that is translated here, propitiation, is the same word that is used for the mercy seat, which is the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place where God meets man in mercy. This, is, this propitiation is Christ taking our sins and giving us his righteousness. This is what Christ means when he says the ruler of the world is cast out. Satan's power to accuse us before the Father is taken away by Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. What a promise this is. But it's not just the promise because even now, seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us is Christ Jesus who by his obedient suffering and death has silenced the accuser, thrown him out of heaven so that he may no more accuse those who call on the name of Jesus and follow and serve him. Jesus says, this is point three, his soul is troubled, but God will be glorified. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We see in these few verses such an amazing display of the humanity and the deity of Christ. We see Christ's human nature struggle with not just the prospect of the impending pain and death that he will endure, but more so with taking the pain of our curse, the curse of sin enunciated way back in Genesis. I thought what Matthew Henry says in his um, commentary on this point was very helpful. He says, The sin of our soul was the trouble for Christ's soul. When he undertook to redeem and save us, he made his soul an offering for our sin. The trouble of his soul was designed to ease the trouble of our souls. For after this, he said to his disciples in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Our Lord Jesus went cheerfully on his work in prospect of the joy set before him, and yet submitted to the trouble of soul. Christ was now troubled, now in sorrow, now in fear, now for a season. But it would not be always so. It would not be so for long. Second Corinthians 5.18-21 says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God glorifies his name through Christ's work. Christ works all of this through Christ, and we get the benefits. How hopeless we are outside of Christ's death. How lost we are without God working out his plan from eternity past. What a glorious Savior, and what a great God. Christ on the cross became all the lies that I have told. He became the anger that I have towards my wife and my kids. He became the selfishness in my heart that causes me to not share the gospel with somebody that I see as inferior. Christ became the lust in my heart as I scroll through the pornographic website. He became the murder of an unborn baby in the womb at an abortion mill. Christ became the most heinous sins, these deep sins that hold us captive. He took the spiritual deadness of our souls and as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103, verse 12. Think about that. As far as the east is from the west. He didn't say north and south. Why? You can go north and eventually you'll be going south. But you can never go east and eventually be going west. East and west are not destinations, they're directions. But he takes it a step further and gives us his righteousness. He takes our filth and gives us his riches. Now that's a promise. That's really good news. But Christ has words of warning in this. He says time is running out. If you look at verses 25 and 26, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How glorious has been the fulfillment of these promises in the death of Christ. He took this curse of our sin and he gave us his righteousness in this great exchange. But the story doesn't end there. We can still see that there are yet future fulfillments here when Christ says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death is something that we as a culture are terrified by. There are billions of dollars spent every year on anti-aging creams and surgeries and um, supplements that promise longer life and medicines that promise the same. Although I did hear an interesting stat the other day. People who take a multivitamin every day actually have a shorter life than those who do not. Good job, one a day. 
We are always fighting against time, trying to gain just one more day. We are afraid of time running out. But that's just what Jesus warns is going to happen, isn't it? In verses 34 and 36, when those who Jesus is talking to understand that he's talking about his death, they say, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus answers them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. Jesus is telling these Gentile worshipers, follow me now. Believe in me now. Because time is running out. Time is still running out. We know that the second coming is coming. And when it comes, time will have run out. As we see in this passage, the hour of Christ's death has come, and the gospel promises surrounding it are coming to their fulfillment. But there are still future promises, promises of eternal life. For those who regard this life as nothing and live life for Christ, through Christ, and to the glory of God. Hebrews 11.26 says, speaking of Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. But in the end, Moses' own sin was the cause that kept him out of the promised land. The promised land of the Old Testament is a picture or a type of heaven to come, the place of eternal life with the Father and Son. The most beautiful promise of the gospel is that in spite of our sin, We are not kept from the promised land, but we enter that blessed place, not on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ. Our sin is what troubled his soul, and his trouble and death is what guarantees our eternal life. What in this world could ever hold sway over our hearts when we understand this? But every day I look at the pleasures of this world, and I forget Christ. I live for myself. But not only that, going back to the first point, this is an indiscriminate gospel. This gospel is for all people. And how often have I looked the other way when I could have shared this glorious news with someone else? As I was writing this, I was reminded to my shame. Last year... uh, Pastor and Michael Deeren and uh, Todd and I went to Indianapolis for a conference, a gospel coalition conference. And I remember there was some homeless men in between our hotel and the, the conference center. We passed them every day. And I remember my attitude towards these men. I never even thought to sit down when we had break, when we had time, and chat with these men. I just saw them as less than. I discriminated. This gospel, this glorious eternal life in Christ, a perfect advocate with the Father, a powerless devil who can no longer accuse us, this gospel is for those men too. 
I pray that we will drive deeper into these promises and let them be infused into our hearts and that we would consider the reproach of Christ greater than the trinkets of this world and that we would seek truly to live a life in the glory of God. I pray that as we live our life seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that we would be unashamed in sharing this gospel of Christ to all those Christ puts in our path and gives us the opportunity to speak to. This is what Pastor just prayed. There have been so many times at work where one of my coworkers will, will start complaining about something or talking about some issue in society or politics that I know I should speak into with the gospel. But I keep my mouth shut because I'm afraid. Afraid of what they might think. If these gospel promises are really as glorious and as awesome as we find them to be, why would what they think scare me? It's because the treasures of popularity or acceptance are more important to me in that moment than Christ. Period. End of story. Even our involvement in the body of Christ, his church is impacted by this. Let me ask you a question. What is important enough to you for you to withhold it from the service of Christ and his people, his people, the people that he bought with his blood. For me, speaking honestly, I would rather spend time working, at, working and helping around church than I would give my money. But for other people, it might be a different story. I'm not saying that we need to give all of our time and all of our money to the neglect of our families. But what I am saying is maybe it's time to evaluate why we hold on so tightly to things. Why what is our motivation in the way we serve in the church? I mean, there are opportunities of service that we have here in our church. Pebbles needs, needs help. Nursery needs help. Cornerstone Kids needs help. What keeps us from, from that? Is it the, the ease of coming in on a Sunday morning, sitting down, receiving, and then leaving? It is for me. There's so much more that could be said. But I think at at this point, it's best to just, let's all stand and pray the prayer of confession. Father God, you alone are holy. You alone are good. 
You are just and you are perfect and you are sovereign and you are glorious. And everything that you have promised in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ and the, how he saves our souls in spite of the trouble for his own soul, through the trouble of his own soul, all of that has come to pass. And we still know that there are yet future promises of the second coming of Christ. The nature of that coming is far different than the nature of the first. The nature of the first, Christ came to save. And the nature of the second, time has run out. I pray that you would forgive us for our selfishness in evangelism. How we shy away from opportunities to share your glorious gospel with those around us, Lord, because we worry about what they might think. I pray that you would forgive us for our love of the world and its pleasures. We are a weak-minded people. I pray that you would forgive us from our distracted hearts. How often I sit to read your word and before I know it, I'm scrolling Facebook and haven't read a word. We're so inundated by things, Lord. So much to distract us that we forget your gospel, that we forget Christ, that we forget everything that you've done for us, Lord. We forget that we are not our own, but we are bought with a price, and that price was the blood of your precious and only Son. And that in his death and resurrection, we can have life, true life. Yet we'd rather spend our time scrolling Facebook or watching that latest latest viral video that probably means absolutely nothing. Forgive us for seeking ourselves over Christ, Lord. Forgive us, your people. Your holy, precious, wonderful name, I pray. Amen.